This one will be a chaotic one. <laughs> you can't see it, but I just <laughs> Welcome to the Slightly Less Empty Void. This is Big Oops Only. Oh, hello, I'm Kim. Smooth transition that was. <laughs> I'm Anton. And today we are going to be talking about a crisis that I'm going to very poorly describe now. I've been thinking about how our kind of general like sense of community has really shifted with like, I think the internet and also just like people moving around a lot so that a lot of our communities are based on identities and are very like with people similar to us versus like, I don't know, the good old like American suburb neighborhood where you like know all your friends and neighbors and like, I don't know, cute villages where like, you know, everyone that you live around and they're different from you, but you are a community. Hi, I'm just going to stop you right there you as in our five total listeners this podcast got really long we got really sidetracked and we ended up with way more content than we wanted about two hours worth i'm not going to include all two hours because there's a lot of goofing off but we decided to break this one into two parts just because it was getting a little bit chaotic so i'll try to link um, the holiday gift guide that we include at the end of the second one in the description but otherwise um, this is just a warning and have fun Do you think that sometimes that community that we imagined that they had back in the good old days, Mm -hmm. do you think that's just something that we're being nostalgic for, which may have never existed? I like to think, I think it's to some extent it exists. I think probably a lot of it was very white and heteronormative and like gender rolled. Yeah. But I think like ideally you could make that sort of structure of a community still like an accepting version of it now. But like the whole like, lending your neighbor some sugar like do you think that's just something that we came up with and is now present in media and our consciousness but you think people actually like walked over next door and they're like hey can I have a cup of sugar you know like who did people do that I can kind of see it because um my friend is in rural Alabama for a community health fellowship so she's talked about experiencing like the bakery has like an honor system you pay whatever you want and take it like they don't track you and like the town is super welcoming to the fellows and like for thanksgiving i think they got offered like three or four different meals like just like all this food like people were happy to cook for them and like they're super inviting even though these are just like random 20 somethings from like all over the place so i feel like there's some of that like hospitality that i feel like we don't have anymore as much our communities yeah do you think part of the the issue then is like the size of our communities or do you think it's a lot more to do with people's mobility and the digital age and like obviously offhand casual human interaction on the street is a lot harder to come by now in pandemic 2020 but like I'm trying to remember way back in the old days of last year like what is preventing us from having that still I think it's hard for us to really speculate on because we were both in college and that's a different community vibe but I guess I feel like partially it is the size because when you scale I feel like people really like that New York City is in some ways very impersonal or like it's very humbling to feel like you mean nothing and you are no one but (laughs) but (laughs) I don't know if I like that really I feel like sometimes it's nice to remember like I don't actually matter that much there's so much other stuff going on but I think also maybe this this feels more idealized but you know and like I feel like in sitcoms like oh you and your like friends who are like your neighbors in your apartment or something I feel like people don't really know their neighbors now And I think that's less because of scale and more because of like distrust of strangers and also like internet and like having your friends from other places. You don't really feel like you need friends due to proximity. 
I think part of that has to do with our new, maybe it's not even that new, but a focus on independence and being like your own individual as opposed to like a member of a collective. And like, if you really are out of a cup of sugar, you can rely on your neighbor. But nowadays, like nobody wants to have to rely on anybody else. And so then we have fewer and fewer interactions where we like, maybe I'm also making this up, but I feel like I read some like psychological study where it's like you feel more connected to people when you ask for favors. It's actually a tactic to get people to trust you. I don't yeah, know. I, I feel like definitely being like, we've always been individualistic, but that definitely, I think it makes me think about how now people move for college and people move for jobs and you leave your community for your own, like it's your goal and your pursuit. And also my friend wrote a little about like individualism and how it's ruining our society as always. And something that really stuck out to me in what she said was she was like, we all think we're the main character now, but if we're all, the, and we act like it, but if we're all the main character, who are the side characters? How do you foster community if everyone is the main character? And I think that's kind of like the issue that we're facing now. I mean, I've also read, oh, this is a really dark statistic, but like after like major community tragedies, suicides will go down because people have a sense of belongingness and people rely on each other. So like after 9-11, suicide rates went down after big events like that where people are forced to like grieve together people are actually less likely to feel alone and like they have nobody to depend on so that's like really interesting because I don't know like I don't think that tragedies have decreased in frequency necessarily but like what is preventing us from coming together and grieving as a collective as opposed to as individuals that's interesting I feel like that's one of those things where people are like never waste a good crisis like things do get better because of terrible things but then they can never stay better for some reason yeah it's the fleetingness of like our emotional memory for some people it'll last a really long time obviously when they're directly affected but for those of us who aren't directly affected by it like it just kind of like washes out of our consciousness rather fast we have a pretty quick update cycle yeah that's that's true no one can see you, so. I'm sorry, y'all, I'm making crab hands. I am making confused crab hands. You need like a little like clickers. Oh, like um, like they have in those elementary school, the little clappers. Yeah, or I was thinking like in like certain dance. Oh yeah, I mean, it probably came from somewhere. It's just that I remember it in the context of elementary school. That's, that's fair. They probably didn't make those specifically for children. Yeah, children don't, don't need things made for them anymore what (laughs) wait where did that comment come from I feel like I feel like when we make things specifically for children we make everything worse what do you mean I feel like childhood was better when we were just like children or just small adults let's just let them live where I feel like when we focus on childhood as a specialized thing it creates a lot of like babying this probably I don't have a child and I don't interact with children so this might be like not right (laughs) Wait, but isn't childhood specifically like a different thing because of, I don't know, like brain shit? Yes, but I think how we take care of children like in the past several decades has become focused on like childhood as kind of an optimization period. Like I think the more that we like pay attention to children, the worse we're making it for them. I don't know if that's true. Because I can ignore our children. I don't think there's any period in time in which you like give birth to a child and you're like, this is an adult. You know? 
you never like you always treat children differently than you do adults yes you treat them differently than adults but i just feel like when we treat childhood as like super special and we baby our children it probably i i don't know that it works out but okay isn't the word baby (laughs) it's for children that's the fucking point anson I would say like maybe hyper focus on the child is like an issue, right? But I also don't think everything we've done to change childhood is inherently negative. You yeah, know? I, would, I would agree with that. Maybe optimizing your children for the economy where you like try to teach them to learn to read as er- as soon as possible, or we go like, here's the critical period. You try to stuff as much information into their puny little wrinkle brains so that they don't turn out fucking smooth gray matter. There's too much attention paid to that, but I don't think like treating children differently or wanting to care for them is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I'm not advocating against the care of children. I'm very <laughs> pro-care. This might be a hot take, but I approve of people caring. I think I, I was definitely like a blanket. <laughs> just a little. Just, I like had an example and then I forgot it. Hold on. <laughs> Brain loading. <laughs> Okay, we'll wait, we'll wait. I'm seeing the little rainbow wheel going. So this isn't even a good example, but (laughs) I feel like once you pass any age, you like forget what it was like to be that age. I remember really clearly being like 14 and being like, oh my God, why don't adults take me seriously? I'm capable of thought. And like, I remember feeling like I was having all these profound, not super profound moments, but like I have this really strong memory of visiting Westminster Abbey in London when I was like 13 and being like so humbled and amazed by all these like famous dead people and being like, wow, history. And I, I felt like I really like gained perspective. And then like a couple of weeks ago, I realized that I was 13 when that happened. And I was like, that's not possible. Like, there's no way I could have been 13 and had those thoughts, you know, even now I like in high school, I was always so mad that adults didn't take us seriously or give us responsibility. But now as a 22 year old, I look at 16 year olds and I'm like, I don't trust you to do anything and you shouldn't be allowed to do anything. I feel like as soon as we move past the age, we look back and we like underestimate their capability. And I feel like to some extent, when we hyper-focus on children in some ways, I think we are underestimating what they're capable of. When we design things for what we think children should be like, we're, we don't have an accurate take. Oh, okay. So it's not infantilizing them excessively. Yeah. And I think I might be assuming too much about how education is a solution, but I look back and I think we could have spent so much time in school teaching children what is democracy seems important. Lots of people clearly forgot or didn't learn what democracy is or like thinking about emotional regulation and how you treat other people and how you treat yourself and how you like I think there are a lot of things that we could teach children and it would be meaningful to teach them but I as a 22 year old think back and I'm like children aren't qualified to know that but I think it would be meaningful if you at least laid the groundwork as a child but I think as adults we have trouble like perceiving that. Okay, no, that definitely makes sense because I know like in June, a lot of people were like, how do I talk to my kids about race? And it's like you assuming that your kids aren't quote ready to talk about race is based on the presumption that they don't have a sense of how people interact with this concept in the world already. And they definitely fucking do. At the age of five or six, you know, I think they start to like mimic behavior that their parents show in regards to like racialization or people being afraid to talk to their kids about sex. It's like kids actually surprisingly kind of have an idea of what's going on because it comes up as innuendo in TV, in kids TV all the time. Do you remember like all all the highly sexualized cartoon network shows that used to be on like the lady in Powerpuff Girls who is literally just a huge set of boobs and a tight red suit and you never saw her face 
Oh, yeah. Kids are exposed to all this stuff. So you not talking about it does not make it something that you're shielding them from. And I think that's like a really good example of us underestimating children's capacity to understand things. Yeah, like children are absorbing the implicit messages. You should also give them some explicit tools on how to handle it. Wow, I'm very proud that my very muddled point turned out to be insightful. You know what? <laughs> It's, it's just, it's buried in there somewhere, you know, like our, like our adolescent thoughts. It's like, maybe it's not fully fleshed out, but there's a good sense of what, what's happening. I love when my stupid thoughts turn out to be not that stupid. It's, it's always. <laughs> Speaking of um, children and also returning to the idea of the loss of community or the rebranding of community, you, we were talking earlier about um, like the nuclear family and how the nuclear family has now kind of replaced that sense of community as opposed to, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Now it's like specifically parental responsibility to raise a child because I don't know, I feel like there's a lot more attachment to like how your kid reflects on you personally. Yeah. Uh, and like a lot of people, I don't know if it's even like living vicariously through your child, but it's definitely like a reflection of your ability to parent or something, um, whether or not your kid turns out well, which is, I feel like that's kind of a problem because clearly there are other things that influenced me a recently graduated from children person. And like my parents weren't the only thing that made me me. So I don't know. Yeah, I Ezra Klein did this podcast interview with like a developmental psychologist that I really like where they talk about love and care and a lot of it is about childhood and she yeah. uses this metaphor where she was like you can either be a carpenter as a parent or a gardener and mm -hmm. so like if you're a carpenter you're like trying to build like a chair you have to make a chair and there are rules and this is how it is and that's how a lot of parents are treating their children now is like there's a specific shape they're trying to make there's a specific purpose they're going to serve this is how I'm going to make my child whereas like yeah. if you're a gardener you like Put the soil in you put the seeds in you water it you take care of it but like you don't know how it's going to grow it's not going to go exactly you can't you don't have perfect control over what it's going to be you just have the start and like more people should approach thinking about their children their relationship to their children as like more of a gardening pursuit rather than trying to form them in some perfect way yeah i think do you think any like any part of that has to do with like how difficult it is to be okay in society now like I think a lot of it is run at least like looking back at my parents parenting me I think a lot of that like urge to carpent as opposed to garden or like and just let me grow it has to do with like their fear that if they don't mold me into something quote useful then I just like won't be successful in society so it's like a lot harder to let your kid grow to be something that has less stability um because like it's just harder to know that they'll be okay regardless that's that's fair yeah there's definitely no, like economic tension I think in like can my kid especially as an immigrant parent like will my kid be able to make it also like I feel like everyone can look at themselves and see where their parents messed up or where they aren't exactly who they wish they were. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have a child, it seems like this really golden opportunity to fix that, to remake it and redo it. That is way easier than you personally trying to unlearn your traumas and like unlearn your bad habits and reshape yourself. Like it, it feels easier to look at a child and be like, I can, I can teach you five languages and make you the overachiever that I wasn't able to be and make yeah. you outgoing, even though I wasn't like, it, it, it feels like possibility and unlimited potential in a way that once you're an adult, you don't really feel that even though you do still have the potential to grow. Yeah, I guess it seems like a very like 
almost godlike way to approach parenting though, where you have you know the metaphor of like the unmolded clay and you make man out of this like fucking ball of dirt it, that seems like a really weird way to approach parenting but it feels weird and gross but also I get it because you want your child to be successful in ways that you couldn't be you know like if I was to raise a kid I'd like try really hard I think to avoid some of the things that I see like from my childhood that like I don't think influenced me very well but then I'm like is that me trying to exercise too much control but then you also hear there's those horror stories like on Netflix or in books where it's like I was the parent of a school shooter and like you never want to be that parent you're like how do I prevent this from happening and like everybody blames you when something like that goes wrong but is that pushing us to try to exert too much control? Yeah, even like the the attribution of blame onto the parent of a school shooter is an example of like people thinking your parents are so responsible for who you turn out to be. But I feel yeah. like if you've been a teenager, like most people are hiding a lot from their parents intentionally or or unintentionally. So I feel like it's less. And also yeah. going a little bit back to what you said about trying to make your child the way that you want them and like trying to fix these things it almost feels like kind of the very classic like time travel gone wrong plot you know where you go back and you're like I know how I messed up and I know how I can fix it but then obviously it's always like you fix something and it changes something else and you affect something else and you cannot predict what actually happens when you go back and change all those things and I feel like the way the way some parents choose to raise their children is kind of a a present time version of that backfiring time travel narrative. I think also like even in the context of like not even raising your kids but trying to confront your parents about your childhood in retrospect I think part of what makes that conversation so hard is that your parents feel responsible for the way that you turned out and like all the stuff that happened and like you trying to talk to them about like what might have gone wrong and what help you need now makes them implicitly feel like you're blaming them for something even if it was a lot of just societal yeah a lot of societal factors like a lot of stuff that they didn't necessarily have control over or they like had they been an extreme exception they could have made good but was also just really normalized at the time so like I think giving attributing too much agency for parents over the way that their children turn out like also makes it hard to have like an adult relationship with your parents I think in retrospect yeah that's fair I also wonder if our perspective on parents taking this huge relationship how much of it is shaped by our parents being immigrants and also growing up with like your grandparents and your extended family really really far away and therefore they couldn't really be part of raising us whereas like people who like my grandma lives 10 minutes away like is that a different vibe I mean, I think definitely, like, if I'm just going to look at my cousins who are back in East Asia, like, because of the way that modernity is progressing, it's, there's still a lot of attribution um, to, like, the parents specifically, but they're definitely raised by a much larger community than mm -hmm. my brother and I here. So I don't know how that works for not immigrant people in the U.S., but I would assume it's a little more like you have more help from the community, community being your extended family, but... But why does your community have to be blood related to you? I don't think they have to be, but I think that's how it originated. That's how the sense of a community originated where like everybody was part of the same like tribe, like back when we were nomads or whatever, everybody was kind of related in some way. So like your community was also your family. Um, so it's easier to, ma to imagine that way. I mean, which is why like 
race is still so closely tied to nationality, even though it really shouldn't be anymore, given like globalization and mobility. Yeah, I think that might be part of why it is, but maybe I'm just trying to excuse behavior that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I feel like the tribe thing does make sense, but I just feel like at this point, especially because I feel like it is very like, you know, people are like, oh, this person was a father figure to me or my adoptive parent, you know, like we should be able to better detach blood from, you know, meaningful community relationships. I've been thinking about um, how much we expect that the people that take care of you are either like your parents or siblings or your romantic partner slash spouse. Because mm-hmm. like whenever I read a lot of stories about people with chronic illness, I guess, or like I watch a lot of TV about people with chronic illness and they always talk about how debilitating their illness is and how they couldn't make it without their boyfriend or their husband or their wife or their parents. And I always just think like, there are so many people out there who don't have, maybe your parents aren't still alive. Maybe you don't have siblings. Maybe you're not on good terms with your siblings. Maybe you're not married. Like who's going to take care of you? Who's going to keep you company and and make sure you're okay if you are really sick? And I worry about how we've made the nuclear family or like the couple, the Mm -hmm. atomic unit of our society. Maybe that's actually why like a lot of marginalized communities like marginalized identities create communities around that identity. I'm thinking specifically about like the AIDS crisis and the gay community where they their families were not speaking to them, were not on good terms with them, which is I think part of why like there was such a big push towards gay marriage um, during the AIDS crisis because they wanted their partners to be able to see them in the hospital because really that was their family. Mm-hmm. Um, like our medical institutions definitely emphasize blood relation when it comes to like visitation hours and stuff like that, or like who gets to decide DNR or stuff like that. Like it's very, very determined by genetics and not your identification of your own family, which is why like gay people were like, we need to get married because it was their gay partner and not their biological family that was like generally there for them. So I don't know, maybe that's why we have these communities of identity. Yeah, I definitely feel like I associate sort of marginalized communities with having at least some better sense of caring for people who aren't necessarily related to you. Maybe you have that shared slash under like an understanding of their experience. But maybe it goes back to that idea that like your community feels stronger after crisis. But I also don't want to believe that like the only way that you can have community is because you're being attacked by somebody else. That's like a really sad thought. Yeah, ideally, I don't think, I I really hope that's not how it works. Yeah, like, will it take an alien invasion for humanity to come together to be like, we are all people, come on. But we can't even do it in opposition to a virus. Yeah, I feel like if anything, the alien invasion would come and then one group would be like, let's sacrifice the other group and then try to make it out alive. It'll be okay. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the compulsion you have to check your phone even when you know you have no new notifications that's caused by literal chemical addiction to stimuli. I guess like a positive trend that I think we are seeing is I think at least for older people or like the previous generation, it was very clearly like the peak relationship is you and your spouse and then friendship is a secondary like or family maybe is even secondary and friendship is a tertiary sort of level of relationship whereas I think at least for young people maybe because we're all not getting married or getting married late but I think friendship is at least occupying a, a bit of a closer to your romantic relationships in terms of value and prioritizing and putting an effort 
and not accidentally losing track of that once you are in a relationship, I think we're at least getting better about that on some levels. I think I agree with you in that it probably has something to do with young people not getting married as early as they used to. But I also think it has to do with <laughs> maybe I'm psychologizing this. Is that a word? Psychologizing? Psychoanalyzing. There we go. Oh, that's English. Psychoanalyzing this inaccurately or for no good reason. But like maybe it also has to do with like our sense of loss. People are moving apart. Like as like once we graduate from high school, we leave our friends immediately to go to a completely different context. Um, and then after we graduate college, we don't see those people again, basically, because like a lot of us will just disperse across the country or even the world. And so maybe we have, we all have this like really mild separation anxiety because, you know, back in the day, people didn't move away as far as they do now. And people probably return to the communities where they were born to like have their own children, stay near their parents so that the grandparents can be near the grandchildren, whatever. So like we hold on a lot tighter to our friends because we know that that relationship is actually way more tenuous and we have to put more effort in because we can't have those casual run-ins on the street to remind us that we are friends. And there's no such thing as a casual run-in on the internet. Yeah, I I think that for sure is something. I think I think also a lot of people we know because we are in the age range for this are realizing how much like a shared background and shared experience really makes your friendship or I feel like a lot of people I know have started jobs or gone somewhere else and been like, "Wow, these people are really different from the people I grew up with." And realizing how I feel like when you're a kid you think you can be friends with everyone and maybe as a kid you can because you just like play together but yeah. as you're older, I think you realize that you can only really connect with the narrow set of people and you realize how special that is and you realize how much you have to fight to keep that once you find it I also think that like I I kind of want to disagree with the whole you can only connect with a narrow set of people thing though because I think while it's true that there's like a very narrow set of people who will share your childhood background I think there's also a lot of other shit that's part of your identity that has nothing to do with your childhood background that people from your geographic area like might not relate to and that people outside that geographic area might so I think like I think we have the urge to try to connect specifically with people who are as similar to us as possible. But I also don't know if I think that that's necessarily a good thing. Like, I know we've had this conversation before where we said like, oh, it's kind of unfortunate that all of my friends are of the same, basically the same political range as me, same age range as me. I have a lot of shared identifiers. And that means that I have a really, one, a really skewed view of what's in the zeitgeist, like what people's general opinion is. And also two, like, I mean, like, it's really sad that I don't have friends that are outside of the age range of like 20 to 27, essentially. Like, I have no old people friends. I just have my parents. And like, that's not a really good representation of what it might mean to be friends with a real adult. And so I have nobody asked to go to for like advice about being old or whatnot. That used to come about through those chance geographic encounters and like through community spaces like church, I think we mentioned earlier. So I don't know. Do I want everybody to come from my background? Okay, when I meant narrow set, it wasn't tied to geography. I meant you just realized that you're not going to be friends with everyone. And oh, so okay, yeah. The people that you know that you can have that. I definitely think you can meet someone who's from a very different background, but they have a similar sense of humor or a similar set of values or something and still be friends with you, them, you. <laughs> I lost track. But 
I think what you said about asking someone older for advice, I think is interesting because I wonder if that was the case. Like, like if you are in like a tight community, do you actually have that closeness? Is the community we're envisioning just a lot more weak ties that are very diverse, which I don't think is necessarily worse or better, but mm-hmm. like you actually benefit from like, oh, I kind of know a bunch of 40 year olds. Like, will that actually do anything for you? I think it like changes the way that you imagine a greater community. Mm-hmm. But then I also think like the the whole like mentor mentee role has kind of dissolved outside of formal settings where you establish it, especially in like academia or in career places. It basically doesn't exist anymore. That's true. I also feel like I don't know if the internet drew a bigger line than there used to be between young people and old people, but I feel like I understand the idea of old people being very lonely. We shouldn't just put them in nursing homes and leave them alone. And I know that old people want to interact with young people. But at the same time, like as a young person, I feel really awkward when I talk to old people because I feel like we don't have the same, like I don't know how to connect with them or sometimes I'm scared they're going to be like racist or ageist or something. And it's just a weird, it's a weird interaction. But I wonder if that's because I didn't grow up with the kind of community where I knew a lot of old people. So I'm overthinking this. Maybe it is lack of exposure. I think like definitely being afraid of them being racist is a good point. But I also think racism is born out of lack of exposure frequently. I'm not saying all the time. There's definitely people out there who are just straight up fucking racist. But I feel like at least a lot of the smaller like microaggression level racism is born out of not interacting with people from a different group. That kind of raises a tension for me where it's like, am I obligated to teach people to not be racist? Am I obligated to be the diversity, like diversity token so that they can experience what it's like to know someone who's Asian? Like, I don't want to be that. I don't think it's about like, I guess, obviously, like, you don't want to force anybody to be diversity token. But I feel like the point is that you could actually get something out of befriending an older person. So it's mutual. It's not like you're going in there just to educate them about racism. It's like if this had happened over the course of of a lifetime, you would have an older friend and also they wouldn't be as racist. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think something that also is a side effect of the fact that we don't really like cross interact with people of different age groups is I think that we're very insulated from death for a really long time. Like I've, I'm lucky enough. I, one of my grandmothers died, but I was really young. I haven't really experienced losing someone. And I think a lot of people, when you're young and you mostly know young people, it's unlikely that you will run into that. And I wonder if that changes kind of our understanding of death and it makes, it encourages the whole young people think they're invisible, not invisible, (laughs) invincible. (laughs) And I wonder if that affects kind of our society is already very bad at engaging with death and really talking about end of life. And I wonder if that sort of age disparity like makes it harder. I think being an immigrant also specifically makes that harder. One of my grandparents died way before I was born, but then both of my grandmothers died like during my lifetime. And I don't want to say like I wasn't sad, but I don't think I was impacted in the same way that like people who frequently see their grandparents were impacted. Like I was what, like 12 or 13 when, so that means I saw them what, like two or three times because they live a 13 hour time difference away. And so it's really hard to be super close to a grandparent who you don't really see that often. And you're also really young. So you don't understand the magnitude of having a grandparent grandchild relationship anyway. But like, I'm also thinking like, maybe this is why, have you heard of how people will buy like short term pets for their children to teach them about death? No, that sounds kind of sinister. 
Oh my God. Okay. So I've like, I've read things online when searching for just like nice, convenient pets. And they're like, you can buy a hamster for your child because it's a good teaching experience for them so that they can learn about things dying. And I was like, that is dark as fuck. You don't talk to your child about dying. Because it's one thing to like hear about it as a kid and another thing to experience it, right? Yeah, I feel like your hamster dying just doesn't create the experience that is similar to someone you know who was a person dying. That's Also, this is coming from somebody who's like not really, like being afraid of death is not one of my highest priorities. So maybe I was socialized poorly on this topic. I feel like you shouldn't be too afraid of death, right? You you should accept that it's going to happen. I don't know. I feel like when we think about existential crisis, the literal core crisis of existence is not existing anymore, but neither of us are really that freaked out by it. I think knowing any people basically, but especially old people who are not related to you is also always going to be different because I feel like when you know your parents, it's so hard to learn that they're actually people. I think it takes a long time to come to terms with the fact that your parents are very flawed people just trying to figure it out. And then even then, you know, they're always going to be your parents. Your relationship with them is so deep and so complicated. And I think a lot of times, like my parents don't always share. I don't know that much about like the details of their childhood or their adolescence growing up, right? They don't really feel like that's something they want to tell me about Mm -hmm. necessarily. And I think even also with my grandparents, like I've always known my grandparents as old people, right? I don't, I have a lot of trouble imagining what they were like when they were young. And I also feel like maybe this is just my grandparents, but they don't tell me that much about what their lives were like, or I feel like they always want to make it sound good or make it have some sort of lesson because to them, we have that grandparent grandchild relationship. Whereas if you know someone as a friend or in your community who you are not related to, they have less of that sort of desire to want to kind of shield you from things or they're not always talking to you in a way that is so intensely framed by their relationship to you. I think maybe that's why I was always jealous of like the young people who are friends with old people relationships that I saw on TV because in my mind it felt like a significantly healthier way for old people and young people to interact. Like when you interact with your parents or your grandparents like the roles it seems to like form a casing around you almost that you can't get through and makes you like not a real person to that other person. And so like, it's really hard to break out of that or penetrate that shell that like keeps you in that role rather than presents you as like a full human being. But like, I also wouldn't want a parent who's not that concerned with how I turn out or the decisions I make. Maybe that's like an inevitability. Like, I feel like that relationship is so fraught with anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot of emotional baggage and there's a lot of wanting to protect the other person, but sometimes our way of protecting is a way of pushing them away. But then like, if we think about that in terms of like, if that's our community and it's the only community that we know now, how do we expand out from that? Friendship, but also your friend, like so many people's friends are from school, right? You are a little bit similar, at least from going to school and growing up in the same place together. Or even at college, Like when people make friends in college, it's like, okay, maybe you're from geographically different areas, but colleges self-select for people who would mesh well on their campus. In that case, you still have a lot in common. Yeah, I think for me, college was definitely a big diversity experience in terms of where people came from and like the kind of backgrounds they came from, like socioeconomically and like demographically, but there definitely is still sort of a similarity. And I also feel like you can't walk outside and be like, where are my diverse friends? You know, it's like the white people who are like, I need a black friend. Like you can't hire a black friend. You can't 
friends with someone just because they're black. So it yeah. is hard to really break out of the bubble that you already have. But it's like, there's there's no place where you're, okay, even if it is tokenization, mm-hmm. there's no place where you can be like, can I please select an old person friend? <laughs> you know, we don't even, we don't even have a space to do that kind of exploitation. Well, I feel like that's like volunteering at a nursing home is actually something you could do. Whereas if you're like, I want a 40 year old friend, I don't know how to help you, man. I don't know where we get one of those. But I also think like nursing home is a really specific demographic of old people. That's true. I think also this goes into kind of how we've structured our public spaces and our like literal physical communities in that most places you want to go to socialize, you have to pay money for and you Mm -hmm. don't approach strangers in. Mm -hmm. So then you don't really meet new people. Like if someone approached me while I was at a restaurant, I would be like, are you hitting on me? What's happening? Are you trying to scam me? And I think that kind of belief that like you're not, we're not expecting strangers we're not even like in a dating context you don't really go up to people now and like try to date them that would be creepy in a lot of ways and I think that also not having sort of like parks and like town square kind of public areas where you can just sit and not pay money and not be contributing to the economy I think that lack of those spaces especially in the pandemic but even before then I think that contributes to not being able to like intermingle when you said going up to somebody and trying to date them, I was like really confused about the visual. It's like you just walk up to somebody on the street and you like hand them a bouquet of roses and you're like, date? Is this a date? You like hand them a fully cooked steak dinner, you know? And then you sit across from them with yours and you're like, is this a date? <laughs> like you can't. <laughs> no, but like even I thought about this in terms of like making new friends or like finding someone to be in a relationship with like if we both met at a school event even if we like were strangers and I went up to them because you're both there to meet people it becomes okay but if I'm just like walking around and someone comes up to me it's not okay because it's like not something that I was looking for but then we don't have that many sanctioned spaces where we are looking for that sort of new social interaction that's true. It's almost like those spaces were like wearing a green shirt at a traffic, traffic light party. party. Yeah. I'm very it's passionate like, about it. It's your like, I can be approached. Yeah. Okay. So this is my hot take. We should bring back the sense of church, but without the other problems. Hard to do. I understand. But a place where you intentionally talking about values, it's pulled from not a random sample of your community, but a slightly more diverse sample of your community. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least back in the day when it was like all white Protestants or whatever, then like it was just your whole community. But like that, like a gathering place where you talk about values and the intention is to support each other. Yeah, I guess like ideally you have like town town meetings or something. I feel like even speed dating or like mixer socials, they seem very pathetic in our minds at this point, right? It's not something that a normal person would do. You should already have friends or you should have already figured it out. So then we leave out people who might not have found like their people yeah. elsewhere or who are looking for something else. Speed dating specifically, I think it's different because everybody tends to be in the same age demographic. Like that's usually something specified for. And also everybody has to be looking for something romantic, but it's like, what if you don't want that? So I think Mixer is probably more apt. But I think also like the whole, the sermon in a church becomes like a conversational centerpiece. Mm -hmm. Whereas at a Mixer, it's like that meme that's going around with the poorly drawn stick figures where people dancing and that one dude in the corner and it's like, nobody knows that under my mask I'm wearing lip gloss, like that one. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, it's, there's no like centerpiece and nobody's forced to talk. Mm -hmm. I feel like there needs to be something that eases or lubricates that kind of conversation and focus. 
Yeah, I think it's hard because a lot of the more contrived ways to encourage conversation, everyone hates. Icebreaker game, like here's a conversation topic on a card. Like we don't like that, even though in some ways we need it because most people can't do small talk well or like feel unwilling to initiate it. I also kind of wonder if our generation at least meme-wise or on social media, we all appear to have a shared sense of profound social anxiety. And I wonder if like, I wonder one, where that comes from and two, whether that also kind of prohibits us from doing that sort of community that we're proposing really well. Like, I feel like I know a lot of people who are like, I hate talking to strangers. I don't want to speak to strangers. I just want to talk to my friends. I hate interacting with new people. And I also like often feel that way where I'm like, it's exhausting to try to make small talks, to try to talk to someone who doesn't really get where you're coming from. And I try to avoid it because it's more comfortable. And I feel like we as a generation are very in favor of that. I don't know if people are more anxious now than they used to be. Maybe they are due to some social factor that I don't know about, but like maybe people were just forced more often to talk to people in less comfortable situations. But maybe it also returns to that whole like asking people for favors thing. Like you had to depend on the people in your community. Like there was a function to those conversation notes and it was asking for help. But like, it's not like there was a point where everyone's conversation was just, hey, do you have any sugar? And then the other person goes, oh, hey, do you have any eggs? And then the other person goes, hey, could you help me pet my donkey later? And then the other person's like, hey, my wagon wheels broke. Like, you know, there were there were other yeah. things. I think that's definitely true. But I think also like, hey, can you help me with this thing? And then having to do that thing together. If you're like, hey, my wagon wheel's broken, then like you work together to fix the wheel. And during that time, it's probably not dead silent. Like you're probably <laughs> saying something thing or like even if they come over and they're like hey can I have some eggs it would be weird to not have at least a little bit of conversation like you don't just show up to somebody's door like egg with your hand out you know and they like put egg in your hand and you walk away like a little sim like you have a conversation like how is your day how are your kids doing stuff like that like it it's the interaction the functional interaction that facilitates the more casual small talk which leads to like feeling like you know each other and knowing more about each other's lives on a very casual level even if it's not like they know your inner thoughts wow like I feel so seen it's still somebody you can rely on for the little things I think it's also interesting in your example, you see that we need a reason to be talking. We need a reason for conversation. We need a thing to talk about. And we, everyone I feel like struggles, even though they're like, I just want to make a friend. You can't have a good conversation that starts with like, let's become friends. Or it's very hard unless you're like a pretty charismatic and social person. Even though I feel like most people have things to talk about. I feel like when I meet a stranger, it like falls out of my brain or I'm like, that'll take too much explaining. Like they're not going to get it. And it just stops. Like I can't talk to someone unprompted super effectively, even though I feel like that should be a skill we have. But I don't know if people like ever really had to do completely unprompted small talk, which is why it's so hard. Like most of the time you did meet in those common spaces. So to fill that time, both of you are in the same place, you end up having a conversation. Like there's, it feels way more confrontational. I think when you have to go up to somebody to be like, I have purposely come here to speak to you as opposed to you casually being in the same place, waiting for the same thing to happen. There's less incidental conversation, less incidental run-ins than there used to be in person at least. And the internet doesn't really facilitate that. I just wish that we could talk without it having to be about the weather or what's happening or how was your day? Because I feel like how was your day is a very boring question most days, at least like my answer is. Yeah. I just, I resent small talk so much, but I also don't really, I don't succeed well without it either. 
I think I would be extremely skeeved if somebody came up to me and they're like, what is your deepest trauma? You know, like, I think like small talk, while it may not be like the most direct way of getting to know somebody, like I wouldn't want somebody to skip over that step either because that's fucking weird. I'm not trying to like go straight into my deepest identity without any like kind of warm, like I need foreplay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but also at the same time, I feel like there are relationships that I have with people where all we do is small talk because the small talk takes enough time or feels close enough to a real conversation that we never really, because after the small talk, I don't know how to break into like, what is your deepest, darkest? It's hard necessarily to find the clear path from small talk to deeper conversation. But what counts as small talk as opposed to like getting to really know somebody? Like you can still get a pretty good sense of who people are based on how they talk about themselves and how they talk about their day. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I just think that we talk and then it just sometimes doesn't doesn't add up. Or like you know the the New York Times 36 questions to fall in love, right? Yeah. People are people are upset. I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's not people, it's me. I'm Oh my god, Anson, we should do an episode where we do the 36 questions with each other and try to see if we can fall in love. <laughs> ah, screeching. I, or I feel like people, you know, people are like, oh, this is such a deep conversation. And then I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> oh, ouch. Ow. I have never exclaimed that to someone directly, I think. But sometimes I just feel like people are like, wow, this was deep. And I don't think it was. And I feel like people think it was deep because they spend too large a majority of their conversation in that small talk area. But I do also, to counter myself, feel like sometimes part of why having like a significant other is like nice is like sometimes you just want to ramble about like a silly thing that happened to you today and it's convenient to tell one person but like I don't feel the need to alert 10 other people or like reach out to my friend and specifically call them to tell them about the silly thing but it's nice to kind of unpack that or process your day with someone else. That's why we leave so many voice messages in our group chat. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> TLDR Anson treats me as her fake boyfriend. Yeah that's it. <laughs> Okay, but returning to small talk, um, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I started to watch um, How To with John Wilson on HBO. The very first episode is literally called How To Do Small Talk, I think, with John Wilson. And he just like, he just tries to like go up to people in the street in New York City, which is <laughs> crazy. And he tries to start conversations. Um, and he, he does some like pretty sarcastic, ironic commentary on the uses of small talk. But spoilers, the very end of the first episode he goes on vacation by himself and he realizes like basically everybody else is in groups so he he finds it really hard to approach them so there's a few clips of him just like walking up to people being like hey guys what's up and they just like are really weirded out by him but the, he finds this one other guy who's also in Cancun alone and at first the guy's just like oh yeah I'm here for like a good time you kind of typecast him I think as like a frat boy like he's drinking monster Hawaiian shirts like unbuttoned all the way down the front but they reveal to each other that John Wilson has recently lost a close friend and the other guy's really close friend recently committed suicide like a month before the trip and this is his way to escape and so then they like connect like John Wilson's a really nerdy little beanpole white dude and this guy's like a little bit of a beach chad but like they it's like a very touching moment I don't know it's a great show but it it made me think about like how yeah you're gonna have a lot of missed opportunities with small talk but then like sometimes it hits that's like the whole phenomenon where people confess their secrets to strangers on a plane 
people will turn to like the person next to them on the plane and they'll start talking and it's like you you're trapped for a couple hours with like unreliable wi-fi and nothing else really to do and people will like share very profound things about their lives it's that kind of weird phenomenon where you're more willing and comfortable to share with a stranger rather than with someone who really knows you because kind of like what we said about parent child you have your roles and your relationship that are always something you're carrying with you when you're talking to your friend where with a stranger like you don't like them or they judge you fuck that you can leave also like when you were telling that summary it made me think about how even though I want going on vacation alone and doing things alone to be accepted maybe because I'm doing a lot of that in pandemic London but even even now I like I've gotten eaten out alone or like I've traveled alone and I still feel kind of uncomfortable and I feel kind of weird and I the thought of like encountering someone who's traveling alone I would probably judge them a little like why don't you have a friend that you're traveling with even though I've done it and it just makes you think about how much we're socialized to believe there are things that you have to do with another person you have to find someone else to do it you don't do it alone I mean, I think also specifically for women, it's like a safety in numbers thing. So that's kind of unfortunate as well. I was an RA at school and I noticed this specifically with freshmen, like a lot of them are scared to be seen by themselves. So when my residents would like come to the same dining hall as me, because we live in the same area and they'd see me like eating by myself, they're like, oh my God, Kim, like what's going on? And I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody, (laughs) like, please, like, I love you, but go away. No, but I do need a lot of alone time. So I guess what we want is more community, but also more alone time. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I want a lot of alone time, but sometimes when I'm alone, I'm like, I'm really lonely, so I can't make up my mind. Oh my God, I think there was one cartoon of a chicken that I saw that was like the chicken lying in bed and he was like, oh my God, like I haven't seen another person in a while. I'm so fucking lonely. And then the next frame is the chicken at a party and he's like, oh my God, fuck, I hate this. I want to be at home alone. I think a lot of people love that meme and like that kind of genre of meme because it is very accurate and I feel like it does represent what we're talking about in that we both want to be alone and want community but instead we have this like half-assed middle ground that nobody really likes but we all just have it and this is how our societal rules played out. Yeah. We love that. If you want to if you want to join our community and be our friends and also be diverse First, you should make yourself diverse somehow. And then second, you can email bigoofsonlypodcast at gmail.com. Send us memes. You've been listening to episode three, part one of Big Oofs Only. We had so much content on our minds that there is a part two that you can go listen to. And we highly recommend you check it out. Thanks.